everyone, this is Francis with So Many Wrong Notes, and this is the second part of my interview with my friend Xi'an, who's a musician, writer, actor, and activist. As a musician, he's about to release his first solo album called Rounded Binary, recorded with Blue Griffin Records, which contains Preludes and Fugues by J.S. Bach and Dmitry Shostakovich. As a writer, he writes frequently for New Music Box and Cacophony magazine, and has previously written for Chic Shifter, Foci Arts, and Arts Matters Anthology. As an actor, he'll be performing every Sunday in March at the Colvin House with the living room New Beginnings. And as an activist, he currently volunteers as a core leader for civic engagement and media communications for Asian Americans for Advancing Justice in Chicago. The second part of this interview starts with Xi'an asking me a question. Here's a question for yeah. you. How do you feel about the whole like recording yourself and looking back at that and hearing that and working in that way of detaching yourself yeah. and then going back? I'm ambivalent about it. <laughs> I think it's a great idea in principle and I just find myself never doing it. Me too. I don't like it at all. I really don't like it. I I think the tangible energy of another person uh-huh. there um, absolutely changes everything, yeah. you know? In a good way. <laughs> no, absolutely right. Um, a camera just never can do that. No. I also have this thing where when I listen to myself in a recording, I find myself to be less critical of myself. I don't know why. I, <laughs> it might just be that I just hate listening or watching myself so much that I just don't pay attention. <laughs> you just like block it out like yeah. trauma or something. <laughs> if, unless it's a recording of a live performance I've done, but if it, in a kind of a practice situation, oh, interesting. I, I just tend not to like be as hypercritical. Mm. I, I don't know why. Yeah, I I don't know. I've I've been on both sides where I like hear it right away and go, okay, cool. I'm yeah. like fairly proud of this. Yeah. Other times, just like dread yeah. having to even look at it, and and sometimes it you dread it, and then you listen, it's not so bad. Exactly. But um, I don't know. I usually I always feel like what you remember and experience in the concert is the best source. That's the primary source. It's mm-hmm. like you were there and you felt that way about that passage, and you remember it. Yeah. And then you could go back in the recording or whatever, but the recording's like already a copy uh-huh. and it's a a watered down copy exactly and there is something to having another person just there yeah and it makes you play differently but it also really helps you understand what you're doing <laughs> yes it puts you like back on earth yeah. it's like okay and you go oh this great idea that i had that i was amused by while i was practicing makes absolutely no sense <laughs> Right. Yeah. And there's something about having someone there telling you that. Right. Rather than listening to yourself. Which is what we're doing now in a crazy way. Yeah. Like we, you know, with sort of an interview setup thing, you, you don't, um, you just kind of put it out and you broadcast it. We're, we're basically in like this, you know, echo chamber or whatever. <laughs> like we're not, I mean, not echo chamber, I shouldn't say, but we're in a vacuum. And the outside world is way out there and nobody is going to say anything about this yeah. to us, you know, until maybe later. Yeah. And then, but then that feedback is so valuable, it's I so guess. Valuable, you yeah. can 
you can use that, yeah, so that you go, oh, okay, yeah, now that's how that's people right. reacted to it in the real world. Now yeah. We're outside of her, her vacuum. Exactly. Yeah. And we're kind of going through that right now, this process of, of this podcast. And we're learning and we're listening. And it's great to receive that feedback, mm -hmm. to think that some things that we did we thought were just funny and people perceive it a completely different way. And it's valuable to get that kind of feedback. Right. Um, which is a great way to segue. <laughs> you were talking about a piece that you played written by Keith Custard, where you said that you were so involved with that piece that you felt the piece was, in a way, yours. Yeah. yeah. And you said something very similar to me in private conversations, because... Yes. You wrote me three great pieces, one that I haven't even premiered yet, <laughs> for my doctorate recital. Yeah. Um, and I want to kind of talk about how we collaborated on that piece. Yeah. And it was kind of shocking to me that you would say that it was just as much my piece as it was your piece. Absolutely. And in a way, I feel that, but I, I feel like, and yes, it was my job to sell the piece and in that moment when I was performing it I felt it was mine but I felt like it was ultimately yours well I mean, you know what yeah this is the perfect moment to tell you this when you perform it again yeah don't put my name on it okay put no name on it see how we feel about that yeah okay I mean in a sense one of the pieces that I haven't performed yet is based on my words right it's a theatrical piece right a, a, a sort of an essay that I wrote. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I understand why you would think it's half mine. But then the two other pieces, let's describe what those two other pieces are. The first one was called Four Harpsichord. And mm -hmm. Why don't you just kind of tell me what that's like? And well, yeah, and yeah, just to build off of what you're saying and to yeah. give like listeners more of perspective to, to my comments about feeling like I was equally part of something, I'm pretty sure those are the only two. Those are the only two in my life so far. Yeah. Uh, the piece I wrote for you, where I felt that way from the composition side of things, uh -huh. because Jokatude was already being written yeah. anyway, and that was like, oh my God, yes, you get to premiere it. You know what I mean? So yeah. it wasn't like formally written That's for right. you. Let's quickly describe what the Jokatudes okay. are. So <laughs> it's a set of, of works that explores um, the underbelly <laughs> of classical music in... Uh, so it was really part... It was a part of a production called... The Joke's on You, where is basically me doing a Victor Borga type of classical music satire. Yeah. And so each of these pieces was, um, there are 12 of them, right? Or six of them? I think I only played six. You only played six of them, right. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I don't even know if I ever finished writing out the other six. They, they exist. They might be in like chicken scratch still. But okay. anyway, the six then that you played were um, exploring playing with your nose, exploring playing with your butt yeah. at the piano, which you don't play as much anymore. No. But at the time you were... I still play with, play with my butt. But... <laughs> yeah? Wait. <laughs> Have you played with your butt on the, on the harpsichord ever? No. Well, on accident, probably. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, that happens. Sometimes my hands are pretty much like butts. So. We worked with your um, just like dry... 
yeah like morbid humor which just works so perfect for that <laughs> piece like i think you even had a cigarette in your hand for like did the i opening I or you definitely had disheveled hair and we made like yes. the suit just totally horribly disheveled yeah. and this grand entrance for you i think That's we right. used also Shabak zarathustra yeah, i remember that and you come out Bum, 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 bum. and then the big finale fanfare and then lights come on and you're just there <laughs> looking totally not presentable yeah so anyway that's the tone of the piece for the jokitudes that's right um and it was a technical challenge let me tell you they yeah. were etudes i had to play you had to take comedy seriously yeah. <laughs> it was also physically i had to play backwards oh right my gosh like, yeah and I just remember going, oh my, this hurts my arms. How yeah. can I find ways of doing this? You punched me really hard when you saw me. The first time you saw me back. I remember <laughs> I remember when you first came into town yeah. and you just, you didn't say anything yet. You just punched me right <laughs> in the arm. And was like, you, know, you said like, that's for these pieces. Yeah. These are hard. <laughs> they are. They are hard. Yeah. And I also remember like for the one where I had to play with my nose. Yeah. I needed to wear a fake nose yes. because I've got this flat Asian nose <laughs> and I could not physically play <laughs> with my nose. I got enough Irish pointy yeah. to make it work. <laughs> so I was testing. I was like, this is doable. Yeah. Da -dee, da -dee, da -dee. And yeah, I just couldn't do it. So I said, okay, we're just going to have to get a fake nose. Amazing. That but was good. You had like good. this like... It was a turtle, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Anyway, that was sort of... Our I guess it was sort of our second collaboration because we did Balance. Balance, right, right, right. That was sort of our first. Right. Uh, Balance is a piece for Piano Six Hands. Um, there's a YouTube video out there somewhere. Just search yes. that. We, we won't spend time describing that. It's just a minimalist piece of trash. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you say. That's your, that's your tagline for the piece. <laughs> that could be my name for that piece. Minimalist piece, piece of, of trash. trash. Um, and the Jokatudes were signed... Andrew R. C. C. Yeah. Born yesterday. <laughs> That's right. B. B. Dot yesterday. Yeah. Kept it formal. Um, but then the sets of harpsichord pieces were, I guess, our first kind of true collaboration. Yeah. Hopefully the first of many. Yes. Um, and so I really wanted to play contemporary music in a harpsichord recital because I just think it's important to do that. Because I'm still a musician of this time, and I want to play music of this time. And I also want to create the idea that harpsichord is not just a historical instrument. It can still be used mm -hmm. for new music. Um, and so that's why I approached Andy to write this piece. And so now we're finally getting to the point of the process of how you wrote these pieces. And how you felt it became just as much mine as it, as it was yours. Well, I think because they were theatrical, but not all of the pieces were completely theatrical. Well, you have whistling. Okay. Yeah. So I guess we could call the set theatrical in general. Uh -huh. Like there's theatrical components in it. Because of that, because of this theatrical component, I found it essential to have you kind of over my shoulder writing it. Not actually over my shoulder, because yeah. that'd be very awkward. But, you know, just having your, your physicality in mind, your personality in mind... Mm -hmm. It wasn't just pure abstract yeah. sound, which some pieces are for me, you know, some mm -hmm. aren't. But this one, I knew right from the get-go, you're going to be speaking, you're mm -hmm. going to be whistling, uh, you're, you might have some physical gestures that I'll actually write for you to do, like notated. Basically, there was that going on, and 
I basically wrote it in front of you. Like in a sense, I wrote it. Yeah. I was visiting you in in Michigan to work on the pieces. No, I went up to watch you play one of your doctoral recitals. But then you also didn't have harpsichord. But I also don't have a harpsichord. Yeah. Yeah. So I use it as a basically a weekend to explore the instrument. You know, and leading up to that. I pretty much listened to only harpsichord music for like a month uh-huh. and I just as much as possible limited my ears because yeah. I just knew that would be the biggest issue is uh-huh. forgetting the piano like yeah. to truly not write a piano piece uh-huh. just not this is not a piano piece you know and just keep that mantra in my head yeah. like so I really I spent a ton of time just listening to harpsichord rap and you gave me a whole ton of listening assignments and stuff listening assignments what am I you make it sound like I'm... like in a class yeah. no you I, I made you give them to me I made you I asked you and so you were... I have to say the biggest compliment for the piece one of them I actually don't even play the harpsichord so for two of those yeah. three <laughs> for two of the three pieces I have to say that they are extremely harpsichordistic mm. and that's like my best compliment to you cool because and it's hard to de- kind of define what, what is harpsichordistic. Yeah. But there's just the quality about those pieces that just is very suited to the harpsichord. And you can't even imagine playing it on piano. Right. Oh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> right? And the fact I just that did for a second that, there. Yeah. You oh. have that reaction. <laughs> I mean, and I have that reaction too. Yeah. There are lots of contemporary harpsichord pieces where I go, oh, they just want to jangle the piano. That must be kind of infuriating. <laughs> it really is, actually. It really is. Those are the pieces that I absolutely hate. There's a piece that... <laughs> that is the category that I put in there. That I absolutely <laughs> well, like, hate. <laughs> I should say that they might be good pieces, but I just absolutely hate performing them because right. they just don't feel... You don't feel good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel good. And I'm just thinking about a piece by Elliot Carter. Oh, um, the concerto? Not the concerto. It's a chamber piece. I forget what it's called. In any event, it's just not a harpsichord piece. Mm. It just never felt comfortable. And we're not even talking about difficulty. Because mm. you can write difficult harpsichord pieces and still have... I mean, Bach, right. you know? Like, yeah. for example, when I play piano, I could see a passage by a list and acknowledge how difficult it is, mm-hmm. but also acknowledge how idiomatic it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't, sometimes do not get that sense from mm. contemporary harpsichord pieces. However, your piece, I thought, was very harpsichordistic. It felt very comfortable. Cool. So That's very good to hear. I think uh, when I was writing, I just followed what my instincts were, uh-huh. um, exploring the instrument. And I think the immersion helped a lot, just yeah. immersing yourself in the sound. Even then, it was a huge change because the freaking harpsichord recordings are like insanely loud yeah. and very untruthful <laughs> to like... The acoustics of That's the instrument. Right. It's like your head is exactly right. in the board there and you got like an amp or something. To, you know, it's crazy, <laughs> some of it. And also, I think just play with how it felt, you know, yeah. like the way it feels right. is very important. Yeah. And the rolling of that chord the is... Rolling of the... And I think you were very conscious of the bloom of the sound of the harpsichord and uh. the decay. That's what I felt was so, in a way, easy. I felt like you were very conscious of the harpsichord sound. So I play something, and you wrote in the time to kind of enjoy the sound yeah, yeah. before going to the next thing. And I feel like that was very harpsichordistic. Well, I had a blast doing it. And then the other movement of that, for self-deprecated harpsichordist was the name of the piece. 
the other piece is called Four Harpsichord. You know, yeah. we visit Four Harpsichord. And then so I think we should describe what Four Harpsichord is. Uh-huh. Um, four Harpsichord is this kind of meditative. I actually call it a call to meditation. It begins with like clusters in the in the lower register, and I just always thought of that as sort of as a gong. very beautiful motive that kind of expands and I don't know how would you describe it I don't know it's hard to describe well, <laughs> I, don't I, mean, know I describe it like for harpsichord people it's sort of like an unmeasured prelude hmm. the uh, rhythms are sort of written but the timings are kind of up to you and it's really just a great exploration of the harpsichord sound and it's really it pays credit to the harpsichord sound. I think a lot of composers use harpsichord as something ugly and just kind of a jangle. Demented, yeah. like, scene of horror, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And I felt like your piece was actually luxuriating. Basically, well, I'm a luxurious guy. Yeah. Basically acknowledging that the harpsichord sound is beautiful. Yeah. Which doesn't happen quite frequently. Hmm. I mean, harpsichord is known, the sound is beautiful, but a lot of people have this kind of jangly, loud recordings in their mind, and they think it, it's not a very pretty sound, mm-hmm. when I feel the opposite is true. And I feel like you explored that. And it was a very meditative piece, and then the surprise was that I have a whistling thing near the end. Um, and it's, yeah, it, audiences re- really respond very well to this they really like it and I love it too it's a okay so now you have to give a criticism I have to give a criticism yes <laughs> your nose is very pointy <laughs> seriously though you can give me a criticism if you can think of something I can't think of anything seriously like I was very very happy with that piece cool. for harpsichord but then we have four self-deprecated harpsichord <laughs> which is brings out the jokey to side yeah. of Xi'an right yeah. So let's describe what that was for self-deprecated harpsichord. <laughs> it's like, it's the way I would explain that piece is it's a face palm in the best of ways. You know, the, the that when you face palm because you're laughing, <laughs> that's for self-deprecated harpsichord. It's a, it's very theatrical. Basically, Franny's role is like, <laughs> it's so you. <laughs> Do you want to go by Franny here? Is that okay? That's fine. Um, yeah, it's um, it's so Franny's role, like this character you have in you of being just totally down and out of life, like this disheveled down and out in the gutter 
yeah. type of so I just milked that for everything <laughs> it was worth. Basically, he just confesses all of the problems of his life while playing his instrument, explaining to everyone how he's been replaced by the piano, by the modern concert grand, and how nobody cares about the harpsichord anymore. Just really, like, dry jokes, (laughs) like you're talking about your wife. (laughs) Just just things that are just off, not in play, you know, shouldn't be in play in front of an, an audience. And then it comes to a point which, for some reason, makes me laugh so freaking hard. And it's not even that... I don't even know if it's much of a joke, but for some reason in my head it's the funniest thing. Which usually means it's not the funniest thing, right? (laughs) Maybe it just says something about me because I think it's so hilarious. But there's the point where you have to say to the audience that this piece could go on forever. (laughs) And you give the audience the choice to either hear the song or hear... What was it? The song or what? Uh, I repeat something. Well, you repeat that like singing like really bad, like sort of like Uh off sort of trying to sing. So there was a choice between looping the section or going on to the singing. And um, I just find that so hilarious that a performer who's reading music in a classical concert turns to the audience and says, "Uh, this piece could go on forever. (laughs) (laughs) And like, but completely innocently to the score, like the score says this. So like, I don't know why that it's just such a like taboo to explore there of like, like it builds this weird rapport with the audience because it's like this other person. Yeah wrote this thing and had it's written right here it says to uh-huh. not go on unless you guys vote for something <laughs> right now so the audience actually has to vote yeah um to, to move forward so it makes everyone like all of a sudden well, put so, on the yeah, spot like, very they all have agency now yeah. in this weird way but also they're trapped because exactly. like <laughs> they didn't ask for this situation <laughs> I, just, I, mean, I can tell you that it felt very awkward when I was yeah, doing it. It was so uncomfortable. <laughs> that was like the scariest moment of the piece for me. Really? I, I remember this now. Because I'm like, oh, fuck. Now I gotta say this, yeah. yeah. If the audience was to go on, the piece ends. <laughs> and then it ends with the finale of the tune, I Love a Piano. Completely <laughs> with singing at the harpsichord. Yes. So, and, and it was so good. It was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Just the best. Oh my god. Andy made me sing Irving Berlin's I Love the Piano. <laughs> and he wrote it out. <laughs> he wrote it out just the bass note with figured bass. <laughs> yeah, that's the that was the other little joke for you. <laughs> the, entire tune, the, yeah, the entire tune. The entire bass. Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> I'm glad we're so amused by this. I don't piece. even think it's that funny. I, like, I don't think people are going to think it's funny. I don't think the audience really thought it was funny. It's like, it's, right, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's a nice little song. <laughs> but it brought up kind of an interesting dynamic in our working relationship, though. This is the first self-deprecated piano. Because I played it, I listened to the recording, and I think this was the first time I offered a suggestion to a composer without prompt. Without prompt, yeah. Yeah. I appreciated it a lot. And yeah, and I'm glad that it worked out. Yeah. But I noticed that the piece had great laughs at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then the laughs dragged. Uh, in the yes. original draft, there was this long excerpt from a book I had to read. 
Yeah. Which I think kind of Which was more up. like it was more like of a actual statement. It was yeah. too much of a of a cerebral yeah. statement. There was nothing funny in it. Exactly. So like Well, I mean the thing was it was this very slapsticky thing in the beginning. Right. People were laughing and then suddenly there's this big lull in the middle. Suddenly there's this big lull in the middle and then the I love the piano song comes. Right. And I felt like it didn't have the punch. It wasn't the punchline that I think you were going for. Right. And so that's basically what I said to you, that it kind of lags in the middle and it kind of takes away from the punchline. Because no one really laughed. Right. I, even know, at the end. Like, even at the at end. Because in the beginning, there was a lot of laughs. So I felt right. like if we need, to, we need to do something. We just so, need to tighten it up. Yeah, the whole piece, the whole point of the piece is for the laughs. Right. And yeah, that's what I said to you, and I was very glad that you took that very seriously. Well, and it's also to keep perspective. Like it was a big learning experience for me to really ask: Are you looking for your own laughs, or are you looking for the audience laughs? Yeah. And I think some of that I was doing for my own laughs yeah. and for your own laughs. Exactly. Like I was like, "Oh, he's going to find this hilarious," yeah. you know, versus being more frankly mature and to make it for the audience too it's not just for me and you to have fun here well it's most it's all for the audience it's not really for me and you right that's how i almost think of it yeah i think it's for us too i mean it's for us too and we had a lot of fun working on it but yeah i mean the audience completes the triangle it's really i'm trying to get to the greater point of how a performer may offer suggestions to a composer and I felt comfortable doing this because we've been friends for a long time. And I wasn't just saying criticism to say criticism. But I would not have done it if I had known you so well. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain way that a performer can offer suggestions to composers? Should yeah. the performer be prompted? Well, yes and no. Like, if there was one single way for performers and composers, it would um, for them to interact better, it wouldn't be truly organic or real because people are so complicated mm-hmm. and the situation is always changing it's hard to say yeah. i mean we we have a certain relationship exactly. you know and that 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 informs the way we communicate yeah that informs why i wouldn't be annoyed with you just randomly giving me a criticism because you i know who you are and you're not the type of person that gives it all the time for you don't impose it on people you mm-hmm. know Whereas someone else who gives criticism on Nova, I might be annoyed by, I might be, resent it because it would be, it's like, well, I didn't ask you, you yeah. know what I mean? Or whatever, I would get, maybe get defensive. Uh-huh. But for some reason, because of our relationship, the way it coalesced, it's okay. So I guess my long answer is there's no rules. There's no rules. Yeah, it's just judging the situation. And again, Being, yeah. it, it was you. And so, and so I felt comfortable, slightly <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> I, I appreciated that you took it so seriously and then you went and revised the piece and of course I haven't had a chance to perform the revised version yet yeah and hopefully when I do it gets some laughs <laughs> and you know there's times where I have to put my foot down and be like well this performer didn't do yeah. it quite right and that's actually what happened here and so I'm not going to take that mm-hmm. criticism because it was never actually realized in yeah. the first place correctly like, for example, if you totally screwed up uh-huh. the speech or something, and if, or if you, like, I don't know, I did slipped and fell or something. The, the speech. The speech? Yeah. No? I remember I ad-libbed something because I, like, couldn't get the words out. Oh, you had, you said, oh, right, you're like, you had, like, you, like, stumbled on yeah. a word. But that's not why people stop laughing. Yeah. It wasn't like they're laughing and then that happened and they just, like, yeah. embarrassed. No, it was, 
it was the way it was put together. Like the arc needed to change on yeah. that, and and also just seeing where it went. I think I didn't I didn't know how slapstick it would be in the end. Yeah. Frankly, I, I wasn't sure if you mean how I would perform it or how the piece just the way you wrote the piece. You didn't think it would be that both. Slapstick, both. Like I had an idea of what you would do, and I thought it would work. And um. And I wrote three pieces so I could give you the option of not doing it, too, because it's so courageous of you to to do it. It's a really hard piece. To, I don't know many harpsichorders that would, would be able to do that, to be able to pull that off. I mean, the four self-deprecated harpsichorders. Yeah. Like, other people could probably play four harpsichord without as much, as long as they know how to whistle, you know? Yeah. But there's so much theatrical, like, it's so... It's so specific to like your sense of humor and your style that it'd be very rare if someone actually was like, I want to do it too, you know? You never know. Yeah, you never know. I mean, yeah, in terms of presenting information to someone, that's a criticism. Yeah, I mean, like, I certainly feel this with Jeanette, and now I sort of feel this with you, is that you know if we're close, if I'm brutally honest with you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That that's sort of a sign of closeness. I guess that's a very Asian thing to do. Because Asian <laughs> mothers don't say I love you, they say lose weight. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, Why are you fat? You're so fat. <laughs> that's their version of I love you. <laughs> and it's I feel like it's so beautiful <laughs> music to my ears. <laughs> and I feel like that's Ah like, yeah, clean your face. <laughs> yeah. Ah, what are those pimples? I'm 15 years old. Please stop. Exactly. <laughs> that's I love you in Asian culture. Yes, it's lovely. And I feel like that's I've kind of absorbed that part of, of Asian culture. <laughs> that when I'm brutally honest with you, it's, it's yeah, because like because like, yeah, yeah. You care. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And you see, like, you start to see, like, different contexts of someone that you start to understand the mm-hmm. weight of, of what they're saying, you know? Like, you're not going to just randomly throw out criticisms, no. um, which makes there more weight to when you decide to actually give a criticism. Right. Yeah. I remember the first time I had a friend in high school, and she's very, like, sweet, nice, very, very um, kind person, mm-hmm. okay? And then one time she dropped an F-bomb. But, like, just kind of under her breath and yeah. to herself. And I just, like, was shocked. I remember. Like, it was so shocking. I remember to this day where I was, where we were standing, uh-huh. when she said it, you know. Because it was serious. Like, it was yeah. seriously, like, a, something that happened. And, <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget that. Because it's the only time I ever heard her say this. Right? And that's sort of, like, you build up a concept of what that's right. a person's going to do. And if it's, if it's um, that really requires attention, it's uh-huh. going to be you're going to know right away. Yeah. Because it's going to be a little different, you know. That's So is there something to writing pieces for close friends versus writing a piece for someone? Someone. Is there a difference between that? Is that, or is one better than the other? Or is, is, it, is that even fair to say? I think the pieces I write for people I know are better pieces. Okay. Period. Well, I don't know about that, actually. Good There's say. something to what you're saying, though, which actually harkens back to early music, which is why I feel contemporary music and early music have this kinship, is that there's evidence of Handel, let's say, writing a certain aria for a specific singer, and they know, oh, 
so-and-so has great ease. She has her reputation for having a clear ease. Mm-hmm. Suddenly he goes back and he changes it so that she has repeated notes on ease. That he is very strongly considering who's performing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you're also doing that. Mm-hmm. That you're, <clears throat> you have a concept of who's going to play this piece. And in a way, that made the piece easier for you to write. Is that sort of fair to say? Or yes. Oh my God, I wrote the first movement in probably less than 10 hours, 8 hours maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And the others just, you know. And so this kind just, of harkens back to what I was saying earlier about this blur of... I feel like I suffer more when I write a piece yeah. for people I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, I suffer more because yeah. it's more of just... All this labor of tying seams together to make it look a certain way so that it's like just legible uh-huh. and respect is, you know, yeah. given to the score yeah. just from the beginning. Because I, as a performer, I know how quickly uh, a group can poo poo a piece yeah. just from its presentation, even if before they play a single note and it spirals out of control if you're not careful and then they'll play it badly or they'll just mess you know That's they right. won't play it well because there's more stress involved like i wasn't i wasn't stressed about the premiere of your piece yeah definitely been stressed about other premieres though huh. like even with people i know that i don't know as well yeah I, i've experienced just like oh my god i'm not sure if this person's going to be able to pull it off even though they're my friend like i'm yeah. not sure whereas you i was like I'm just happy this happened. I'm just, you know, like I'm not worried and not. Well, I mean, that kind I'm of, curious to see how it comes yeah. out. I'm curious how the audience reacts. That's, That's right. And you were very hands off with me. Like, mm-hmm. yes, you were in a completely different state. But, you know, I've worked with composers who would want recordings and just kind of off the cuff. But you actually were very hands off. And I don't even. Hmm. I remember you being that way. And I just don't. I can't even think, at least for these pieces if you gave me any criticism at all. I'm sure I did if we were playing it together, like when we were rehearsing it. I might have not. I might have just asked some questions. I think we talked a little bit about timing, maybe. I think you're right, you're right. But I almost felt like that wasn't even like criticism. Well, maybe that's the answer. Have a discussion where you both grow with a piece in a way that it's not... It's not structured in a critical way. It's not structured as criticism. It's... Really just structured as questions and, and working through it together, maybe? Maybe. I mean, because I do that a lot where I'd like ask something or suggest something uh-huh. or talk about something that I don't know the answer to yet or okay. I don't have a single definitive opinion about mm-hmm. it yet. Yet. And uh, could a performer sway you in a certain way? Yeah, exactly. That, that's the whole point of talking, right? Yeah. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Well, even if... Without the talking, just how they performed it. Like, you hear it for the first time, and you go, I didn't imagine this would be like this, but that's awesome. Right. As opposed to, I guess, the opposite happens a lot as well. Right. Right. In in terms of our relationship, I think I kind of very much appreciated how hands-off you were. Although, I would not have minded if you were more, like, hovering over my shoulder. It goes to the issue of trust. Like, we've had this friendship for a while, and I guess we've built up the trust. Do you have that same kind of trust with other, other people? people? 
No. <laughs> I've called for rehearsals before a performance of pieces all the time. Specifically, like, I need to hear you mm-hmm. before, you know. You know, the way I see it is, like, if I'm alive, I might as well offer yeah. my opinion. And, like, if I feel like I'm going to be misrepresented in a certain situation, I'll, you know, mm-hmm. say so. How do you deal with when you feel like you've been misrepresented? And how does that make you feel? Um, it makes me feel kind of like queasy, (laughs) like you can't really, I mean, there's also an element of it where I just say that's okay. You know, that's life. And, you know, the bird has flown. Copeland said this where we said like writing a piece is like sending a child off into the world and and you no longer are the parent. You gave birth to it. But you're no longer the parent. Yeah. Aaron Copeland on childbirth, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> if you have any questions about childbirth. Uh, but anyway, there's um there is this sort of you have to relinquish yeah. control. Um I usually tell them though that I'll say something, yeah. Uh-huh. Like especially if it, if it's gonna still be maybe recorded, like uh-huh. for a CD or something, or there's gonna be subsequent performances on a tour or whatever. Yeah. Like I told a friend, I was like one time because I I left the country, I left Montreal uh, earlier than expected, so I couldn't hear the final recordings of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't there for recording sessions or anything. I never got to hear the piece live yeah. ever, actually. Um, and when I heard the recording, it was just too fast. Mm-hmm. This there was a section that was just too fast, and it just wasn't working the way I saw it. I just felt man, this section is only two minutes here and it's supposed to be like eight minutes, you know? Like, okay. seriously, too fast. Like, and it's my fault, too, because I didn't really say. I didn't really I didn't really give a tempo or anything. Um, I wasn't happy with it because of that. So I, I, won't, I don't really think it was a success in that way. But I do think it could be a success in the future. Like, yeah. I still think it's a piece that could work. With I would have to performer? make edits. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just might have to be, you know, a little more involved. Yeah. And then there's there's a piece, like, for violin and piano that I really felt that worked super well, even though I wrote it for nobody at the time. Mm-hmm. I just wrote it because I wanted to write this piece. Um, if there's really literally no other... Maybe this is, like, an open call for a pin for steam. Really great violinist in New York. And she um, kicks butt. She... She played it um, with me at the piano, which helped because I was like at yeah. the piano, and gave some really great, you know, suggestion. I think there's one suggestion for like a soulpont mm-hmm. um, instead of always soulpont, alternating and kind of slowly going soulpont and slowly off soulpont okay. for the section, and it worked so well. And it was totally her suggestion, mm-hmm. so she she composed that bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that wasn't my. My suggestion. Mm-hmm. I just suggested Sewell Pond. I was like, oh, it works better. Just yeah. in, in and out there kind of thing. So, um, interestingly enough for that piece, though, when it was performed again, <clears throat> I think it didn't really, it was a little off the mark. It didn't really sit as well mm-hmm. because this, the next violinist that did it was really aware of the first performance oh. and was really aware of that recording yeah. too aware where there were things that were forced like tempo wise uh-huh. and feeling wise that just wasn't going to work with a new group I almost wish that she didn't listen to the uh-huh. other piece 
Well, that just kind of speaks to the power of recording, doesn't it? Where, yeah. And I feel like a lot of people listen to recordings too much. Mm-hmm. And kind of ape. And that's another thing that I like about contemporary music. There is no recording. Right. Which is precisely why I felt good about writing the piece for harpsichord. Because, well, one, I didn't have a ton of repertoire to explore. Like Zanakis, mm-hmm. Elliot Carter, uh, Ligeti. But not a ton of like standard yeah. contemporary music. The overwhelming majority of the music I listened to was 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 early music, so that you know I understood where it was coming from. I I didn't I knew I didn't have enough background to yeah. really even put the like you know whatever ligety into perspective. Mm-hmm. And I also felt liberated. I felt more free because I was re-exploring early music. I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to build off of the contemporary music tradition for that instrument mm-hmm. already, which you would for like, you know, other instruments yeah. like piano or usually my way out is comedy. <laughs> it's jokes. <laughs> That's my way out of that dilemma. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, I can't do anything innovative here. Oh my God, everyone's done all this stuff. Well, I think this conversation has petered out very awkwardly. We'd like to end things off with it. So. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chia. Well, I'm just, I'm just delighted to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so happy. I'm also very happy that this worked. I'm happy you're happy. I'm happy that you're happy that I'm happy. You're fat. You've got cubes on your chin. Your breath smells bad. Your teeth are yellow. Your skin's yellow. Your mom's yellow. Your mom's yellow. Holy shit. <laughs>